Let's follow along in verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoring more eagerly to see your face with great desire, therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, and we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. As you know, sometimes governments can become so heavy-handed that they become tyrants and restrict the liberties of different people groups. Such was the case in the early church. The Roman government became so scared that the church was growing and they saw them as a political threat that Tertullian in his writings says that spies were sent into churches to bring back reports to the central government as to what these people were up to. They thought that the Christians might become disloyal to the Roman government. And Tertullian said that a spy went into a local assembly and brought back this report. These Christians, he says, are very strange people. They meet together in an empty room to worship. They don't have an image. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent, but whom they seem to be expecting at any time. And my, how they love him. And oh, how they love one another. I wonder if spies were sent from an atheistic government among our assembly, if they would report back authentic Christianity, love that flowed between the people of that assembly. There was a guy walking down a street and he saw a used bookstore and he went by and in the window he noticed a book entitled How to Hug. Being a romantic, he went in and he was intrigued by the title and he was going to buy it and then he discovered that it was simply the seventh in a volume set of encyclopedias that covered the subjects from how to hug. He was disappointed. I wonder how many people come into a church expecting to see love 
but instead they find theological volumes as they see our lives. They don't want a book on theology. They want genuine love. And one thing we notice about Paul, he was committed to the Word of God, as we saw last week, but he was committed to the people of God. And that's what we zero in on this week. As we have already read, Paul is very personal in this section. He's a model, really, of brotherly love. He opens up his heart and he shares the feelings that he has, the emotions that he has toward those young Christians who are left at Thessalonica. Love is really misconstrued in this day and age. I have heard it used all the way from I like something to unbridled lust. They use the same word. I love that restaurant. We love each other. She loves chocolate cake. Same word, but it means so many different things. And today we talk about brotherly love, the love that in any Christian assembly ought to flow from member to member. Brotherly love. The word brotherly love is a Greek word, and one of our cities in America is named after it. Philadelphia is the Greek word brotherly love. It comes from two words, phileo, to be affectionate to, and adelphos. Phileo adelphos, Philadelphia, to love or to be affectionate to a friend, a companion, and it's called simply brotherly love. In fact, a few times he uses the word like verse 17, but we brethren, that's the term of brotherly love. The key thought to brotherly love is others. Christians are to be others oriented. We do not meet primarily for the idea of us getting a boost out of the service. Though we do, we want to get fed, we want to be ministered to, but a thought ought to be, what do I have to give to others? It's others-oriented. That's Christian love. And we see that Paul's thinking of this goes all the way through this entire chapter. This morning, I want to look kind of sum this thing up, and we're covering a big section, a big chunk, and so I simply want to look at the five qualities of brotherly love. Five qualities of brotherly love. As we go through it, as we should always do, let's take a test and see if we have passed all of these qualities or not. First of all, verse 17, we see that brotherly love desires others. Let's read it. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, it's been about nine months, ten months, up to a year, in presence, not in heart, endeavor more eagerly to see your face with great desire. And you notice also the end of verse 6 of chapter 3. that You always have good remembrance of us greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. So brotherly love desires others. And what I mean by that is Christians want to be together. Paul reluctantly left this church at Thessalonica. He didn't want to leave. But he was forced to leave. A riot broke out. And by night he had to leave and go to Berea. But he didn't want to go. He had to. And now for many months he's been without seeing their faces, being able to encourage them. He was absent from them. He said not in heart, not in spirit, but physically he was taken away. And notice the term being taken away from you. In Greek it's one word which literally means I was orphaned from you. I feel like a dad being ripped apart from his child. That's what I feel like. Back in verse 11, he spoke of himself as a spiritual father. 
And before that, sort of as a spiritual mother, nurturing them. And the idea here is, as a parent, it is so hard for me to be apart from you because it's natural for me to have a love for you, as any parent would for their children. Now, in our country, we have laws that, up to a point, govern the care of children by parents. If you break those laws, you can be thrown in jail for child abuse. If you leave your child out in the parking lot uh, with the doors locked on a hot summer day, that's child abuse. If you don't clothe your child, uh, you don't feed your child, you neglect your child, uh, you can be put in jail for it. But good parents don't need those laws. They love, they operate on a higher law of love. Um, the wife doesn't have to nudge the husband in the morning and say, well, we better take care of that kid or the cops will come and get us and throw us in jail. I'm scared. They love their child if they're any kind of a parent. It is natural to care and it is natural to feel the longing to see them. And Paul says, as a spiritual parent, I long to see your face. And in chapter 3, verse 6, you long to see our face as well. Being with other Christians is a hallmark of being a Christian. True Christians are not lone rangers. True Christians do not say things like, I don't need other people. I don't need to belong to any church. It's just me and God, and we'll make it just fine. That's not a mark of a true Christian. A true Christian likes to be with God's people. As imperfect as we are, we need each other. We need that mutual fellowship. Why? Because simply we're citizens of heaven. And if you've ever watched people immigrate from one country to another, they often seek out people who are like them. Uh, we all know that Rio Rancho is called what? Somebody said it, Little New York. That's sort of a little subname for it. It indicates that a lot of people from New York move there because there's a lot of people from New York who are there. And there are cultural similarities. There are language similarities. There are food similarities. All the things that they love. Being with each other, they often congregate to enjoy those things. And so it is with Christians. We long to be with each other, to fellowship with each other, because we're citizens of heaven. And it's important to underline that. We need each other's physical presence. We need to see each other's faces at close range. We need to observe and watch victories, failures, joys, sorrows, because that answers the question, how does Christ work in you? How do you deal with life? What is the meaning of these things personally? And to watch that fleshed out, that takes vulnerability, but it's essential for growth. Judson Swearer wrote these words, and I agree with him. Some people are like medieval castles. Their high walls keep them safe from being hurt. They protect themselves emotionally by permitting no exchange of feelings with others. No one can enter their lives. They're secure from attack. However, inspection of the occupant finds him or her lonely, rattling around in his castle alone. The castle dweller is a self-made prisoner. He or she needs to feel loved by someone, but the walls are so high that it's difficult to reach out for anyone else to reach in. Fifty-seven times in the New Testament the phrase one another occurs. Thirty-two times in the epistles of Paul 
one another occurs. Love one another, edify one another, pray for one another, encourage one another. You can't do that alone. You gotta be with one another to effectively carry that out. And so a hallmark of brotherly love is that we desire one another. By the way, one of the things we are always looking toward, I, I find churches all over the country for years coming up with evangelistic programs, how to reach them, the outside world. Well, one of the most effective ways to reach them is to love us. You know that? By this, Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by the fact that you love one another. You see, the world will see some authentic Christian love another authentic Christian in an authentic kind of a way, and they go, oh, look at that. That's a lot different from the kind of love we have out here. You know, there are two common reasons that people do not go to church. Unbelievers do not go to church today. It was polled. Number one, they said, we don't go to church because we feel the churches are cold and uncaring. Second reason that people don't go to church is because they feel that so many churches are more concerned about their money than their soul. They're always talking about this drive and raising money for this and always mentioning the offering sometimes two and three times. And we feel like they're not concerned about us, but they're concerned about our soul. I mean, about our, about our pocketbook, our money. That's, that's heavy duty. We need to be with each other. Now, I know what people are thinking. I've watched this church grow. And I know that people think that when you're in a large church, it just is not possible to have intimate fellowship. And so the sentiment often runs, I can't really have intimacy. There's too many people. And so I have to leave and go to a smaller church. Well, listen, you better pray that that small church doesn't grow. Because if it does, you're going to be dissatisfied again and leave to a smaller church. So pray that God doesn't bless it. Nobody comes to Christ so that you won't get upset. <laughs> Truth of the matter is, it's all a matter of your decision. Did you know that the early church had between 20 and 30,000 members? 5,000 came to Christ, 3,000 came to Christ. They numbered the men. They figured 20 or 30,000 people. And yet the text says in the book of Acts, they were together and had all things in common. How? Well, I think, first of all, they determined to do so. They didn't hide behind any excuses. They got together. They couldn't know everybody, but they could know some. Even if you have a church with 100 people, you won't know all those 100 people very intimately, but you'll know some. There was an American team that was climbing Mount Everest. Mount Everest has a reputation for being almost impossible to climb. The psychiatrist knew the odds that this team was up against. And so they were giving a battery of tests to these people. And they were asking them, will you make it? Are you ready for the task? And so the psychiatrist went, one team member at a time, and he said, are you ready? Are you going to make it to Mount Everest? Are you going to climb the top? And most of the responses were, I'll try. I think I can try. I'll do my best. Came to one person, and he said, are you going to climb Mount Everest? He said, I will make it to the top. He did. 
Those words are potent words for you if you're the kind of person who thinks, I don't have what it takes to be friends with people. Now you can make a decision and by God's grace, he'll fortify that choice. The Bible says he who has friends must himself be what? Friendly. He who has friends must himself be friendly. Make the commitment to make connections, physical connections, with people that you can fellowship with, be it a home Bible study, a kinship group, some way you make that choice. Paul did. He had many churches he ministered to, not just this one, lots of them. He couldn't wait to see their face. Now look at verse 18, and we see a second quality of brotherly love. Brotherly love endures for others. Not only desires others, but it endures for others. Therefore, we want to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. Now remember that Paul's team wasn't always favorably accepted from city to city. In fact, a riot broke out in Thessalonica. They had to leave for Berea. In Berea, the people in Thessalonica chased them down. He had to go to Athens. He was just dogged everywhere he went. But no matter that he was persecuted, he said, time and again, I wanted to come to you. And that's my heart's desire. It's been tough. I've been persecuted. But I still have this desire within me to get to you, that I can minister to you and make up what is lacking in your faith. Now, it's interesting that he used the phrase, Satan hindered us. The term means to break up a path or to put an obstacle in the path. Or it's an athletic term of somebody cutting in front of you when you're trying to run a race and pushing you right off the track. I tried to make it to you, but every time I did, Satan cut in front of me, put up obstacles. I couldn't make it. Some people think it was Paul's thorn in the flesh. Second uh, Corinthians 12, he calls it a messenger of Satan. Some people feel it was this group of antagonists from Thessalonica, the Jews who persecuted him and moved him out of town. But it's interesting that he attributes it to Satan. The opposition, he says, Satan hindered us. But in other places, he saw opposition is from God. For instance, when he wanted to go to Asia, it said the Holy Spirit wouldn't let us. We were hindered. There was opposition. The question that comes to us is, how do you know which is which? That's an important question. Because I hear a lot of Christians attributing things to God or the devil. I don't know if they have any idea which it is. That's of the devil. Oh, that's of God. The best way to tell is by hindsight. Did the opposition hinder or further the gospel? Well, in one case, it furthered it. Because he got a vision from a man from Macedonia who said, Come over here and help us. And he did, and the gospel was furthered. In this case, the gospel was hindered. So in looking back and seeing all of the elements... He concurred and concluded that Satan hindered him. But the great thing is this, and I don't think we need to make a big deal out of it. Even if Satan hinders you in some area, God is still sovereign. And he can eventually, if not immediately, override the hindrance. And that's why Paul was confident that he'd see them in the future. Now look at uh, chapter 3, the first few verses. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, brother minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were appointed to it. Now, Paul was willing to make a sacrifice. 
and here's the main point of brotherly love endures. Paul was at Athens, or he wrote this from Corinth, but he says, when I was at Athens, I was so bugged wondering how you guys were doing that I thought the best way to handle it is to let Timothy leave me, that I'd be alone at Athens, and I'd let him find out how you're doing and minister to you. Now, what strikes me about this is that Paul had been alone at Athens once before. We read about it. It says there was so much oppression that his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the idolatry of the city. He was lonely. Yet, he was willing to expend Timothy, his closest compadre, his closest friend, his young son in the ministry, and let him go and minister to another group of people, leaving him alone. He was willing to forsake that privilege and that right because it meant the edification of other Christians. Listen to what Keith Miller said. The way to love somebody is to lightly run your finger over that person's soul until you find a crack and then gently pour your love into that crack. Paul didn't want to be left alone. He hated it. He was oppressed, but he thought, well, it was a lot better me being alone for a while and without the strength of Timothy, just that I would know how you guys are doing and it would strengthen you in your walk. Keeping that in mind, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To the Romans, he said, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Brotherly love sacrifices and endures. There's a story about the time when the USS Pueblo was captured and 82 crew members were taken into captivity by the North Koreans. Thirteen of them were forced to sit in a hut in a rigid position in an upright chair for hours, all day long. The first day, the door flung open. The officer came in and with a soldier's rifle, he beat senseless the man sitting in the chair nearest the door with the butt of the rifle. The next day, they were all sitting upright again. They were forced to sit in that position. Not knowing when it would happen, that door would fling open and again, the officer would walk in and beat that guy in the first chair again with the butt of his rifle. It happened three days in a row. The sailors who were captive knew if this continued, maybe even one more day, he'd be dead. And so each of those 13 sailors each day would take a turn sitting in that horrible chair, waiting for the officer to come in. And you know what? It worked. That sacrificial love stood against the opposition of those North Korean soldiers, and it won over them. And eventually they were set free, but they all survived was the point because of the enduring love that they had one for another in that kind of a setting. Now I'd like you to look at verse 19 of chapter 2 and we see a third quality of brotherly love is that it rejoices in others. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Look over at verse 6 chapter 3. Uh, no, look at uh, verse 8. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Five times Paul uses the word 
joy or rejoice in terms of his relationship with that church. He rejoiced over them. A necessary ingredient for brotherly love is joy, and I would say joyful times together. Well, we need to pray, we need to fellowship over the Word of God. You know what? I think we need to laugh together. I do. I don't mean frivolously or in a lewd kind of a manner, but genuine joy in the midst of people. USC Medical Center put out some statistics that the medical researchers believe that when people laugh, they release endorphins, which ease pain. Cornell University said that leukocytes are reproduced more rapidly when a person laughs, fighting off infections. I think that's fabulous. What is the last time you had a great time rejoicing with another brother and sister in Christ? Maybe you caught yourself and said, oh, Christians aren't supposed to do this. Oh, really? I think just the opposite. I think those are necessary times. But notice what his joy was over. He was rejoicing over the coming of Jesus Christ and having all of those people that he ministered to in Thessalonica with him. To me, that's very significant. He's saying, in other words, I want to see your face now, but even if I can't, it'll be more awesome to see your face around the throne of God eventually. And he's not saying, you know, I want a reward when I get to heaven. He says, you are my reward. When we see Jesus Christ that is coming and you're standing before the throne of God, I love you so much and my perspective for our relationship is so eternal that the real payoff is seeing you around the throne of God with me. Wow. He was so wrapped up in the life of his converts and other people with an eternal perspective, that was his reward. Now, when you get to heaven, you may walk up to somebody who is influential in leading you to Christ, and you probably go up to him and say, I just want to give you a hug or a handshake. Thanks for being that vessel. Thanks for having that crusade on television. I watched it that night, and I gave my heart to Christ. Or thank you for writing that book or that track. But another question, who's going to come up to you and say that? What people will say, thank you for your life and your testimony. It was because of your life that I made a commitment to Christ. What missionaries will come up and give you a hug because you supported somebody to go over and reach them for Christ? You know, no matter what you own now or who you are married to, all these things are so temporal. But one day we'll stand before God. And the reward will be the people that we invested in for all of eternity. The point is this. Don't go to heaven alone. Take some, drag somebody along with you. Love somebody along with you. Influence them for the kingdom of God. If you're parents, you've got a mission field right in your own home with your kids. As Spurgeon used to say, before a child reaches seven, teach him all the way to heaven. You've got a mission field, no matter where you're at. Daniel Webster, a great statesman and lawyer of the United States, once said, if we work on marble, it'll perish. If on brass, in time it will efface. If we raise up temples, they will crumble to dust. But if we work on immortal souls and imbue them with principles, with just fear of God and love for our fellow men, we engrave on those tablets something that will brighten to all of eternity. Paul said, I can't wait to see you at Christ's coming with me. That's my reward. That's my payoff. Fourthly, we see in verse 2 of chapter 3 that brotherly love 
treats others as equals. And this is really tough for some of us because we don't fundamentally see them as our equal. We see them as less than we are or sometimes better than we are. But I want you to notice how he introduces Timothy in verse 2. I don't want to skip over that. He said, And sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ so that you are to establish you and to encourage you concerning your faith. You know what I like about this? Paul was older. Paul was apostolic. He was an apostle. He was uh, a schooled, intelligent, more spiritually mature person, but he recognizes the gifts of Timothy and puts him at an equal level with himself. He didn't say, well, I'm going to send you a peon named Timothy, and he's really the guy that I led in the Lord and that I'm uh, spiritually over, and he won't do as good a job as I can, but it's all right. It's all we got. He's a fellow laborer. He's a good minister. He's a brother. That is part of brotherly love. It recognizes the gifts and the ministries of others. Remember, Jesus said to the Jews who said, the best commandment is love God with all your heart. He said, yeah, but there's another one. Don't forget that one. It's like the first one. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. I hear a lot of people say, well, I've got to learn to love myself first. You already do. Believe me. <laughs> and then you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Paul said to the Philippians, speaking of that whole issue of love and esteem, let nothing be done through, done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let not each of you look out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, treating others as equal is hard for some of us because we distance people by labels. Have you noticed that? We put them in camps. Well, they're white or black or Hispanic or Democrat or Republican or charismatic or fundamental, and on and on and on it goes. And we put them into camps. And instead of seeing them like us, they go, yeah, well, they're sort of like me, but i got a little bit better thing going on. Paul didn't do that with Timothy. Play down the differences. We're part of the body of Christ. And think of the body of Christ like you think of your own body. In your body, you have 15 million, give or take a few thousand, nerve connections that regulate 600 muscles in your body. And they attach to your eyes and ears and tongue and your olfactory senses, and the idea is that the messages are sent and the body is coordinated. One part doesn't usurp authority over the other. They serve each other. So there's a coordinated effort. When it doesn't work, we call that a disease. When it doesn't work in the church, we are diseased. And so we need to be involved, but also recognize the involvement of others. And finally, look at verse 10. We see that brotherly love prays for others. This should be so fundamental we don't even need to mention it, but we should because it's in the text. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. And now may the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. You might think, well, you know, Paul, you've done your work and you've got so much work to do. Just forget these guys. But Paul would never forget a church that he established. He would continually pray for them. He prayed that they'd be strengthened, they'd be established, that they continue to grow. That's all a part of a, a shepherd's heart. He wouldn't just leave them as orphans. He was already grieved because he was torn away from them, and at least he could do is pray for them that they'd be established in the faith and that he'd get to see them. So let's wrap it up. A double commitment is necessary. We have to be committed, as we saw last week, to the Word of God. But we also must be committed to the people of God. There's no room for the lone ranger mentality as a Christian. We need each other. We need to be with each other. We need to pray for one another, to endure with one another, and to rejoice in each other. All these are a part of brotherly love. Dawson Trotman is the guy who founded the Navigators, and probably most of you have heard of the Navigators. They're in college campuses. They're all over the world. Dawson Trotman was a man who was noted for living out the principles of brotherly love. He was an expert swimmer. And uh, one time... He was in a crash, a boat crash, that cost his life. And as somebody was drowning, he would go under and pick that person up and take them safely to a place of safety, a shore or a mooring. When he was going down to get somebody else, he never came back up. And it was ironic because people thought, here's an expert swimmer trained in this stuff, and yet he himself died of drowning. Time magazine had a feature article after his death. They showed his picture, and they had one sentence underneath it. Dawson Trotman, always holding somebody else up. That's a sentence that was sort of a perfect description of his life. Here's a guy who always held somebody up. Who are you holding up? Who are you holding up? I know that we're all weak and we need each other to hold us up, but we need to hold other people up too. There's a lot of people who need us. They are sitting next to you right now. We shake their hand and we say, God bless you, but we need more than that. We need significant connections to find out where the hurts are and hold those people up. Once when the gospel was preached to China, an evangelist went to a province, went to an elderly gentleman who was Chinese and said, Have you heard the gospel? The man said, No, I haven't heard the gospel, but I've seen it. You see, there was a man in our village, a notorious drug addict, a very mean person who used to beat a lot of us up. And somebody preached this gospel to him, and he's very different now. He's a loving man, a gracious man. And no, I haven't heard this gospel, but I've seen it, and it is very good. The gospel needs to be seen, and it comes by loving one another. Then all men shall know that we're disciples.